Morena and welcome to the Kaka. It's the Dawn Chorus. I'm Bernard Hickey and today we're going to look at the budget deficit, which is much smaller than the government expected, what it's going to do with that spare money. It's about a $30 billion piece of headroom um, from, the from the government's uh, pre-election fiscal update. And we're going to include a section of a press conference that I attended uh, yesterday and some questions I asked. We start off in this press conference with Dilipa Fonseca, who is a reporter for Stuff, who um, uh, asks the first question about whether this budget will be about saving money or whether it's about reducing child poverty. So is this about saving money or is this about reducing inequality? Well, it's both. That's the point. That's exactly the point that I just made, that we're in a situation where overall in the economy we've got to make sure that we're careful with our management. We've taken on a lot of debt. We will continue to see that debt grow over the next few years before we hope to pay it down from the middle of the decade. So, so just let me finish. But alongside that, we want to reduce inequality. And one of the issues we do have is when we just do percentage pay increases across the board, we actually can see inequality grow in some sectors. So we've outlined the fact that that is a goal for the government and one of the ways that we can help deal with that is within, within public sector. So you were elected on the PREFU track and now you look to be um, effectively banking that $30 billion worth of headroom by reducing debt instead of reducing child poverty or investing in climate change or housing. Why do that? Why not spend that money to achieve your objectives rather than use it to reduce debt? So you, you've um, you heard today about skill shortages. Surely when you have skill shortages, wages should be the thing that rise to help um, balance that. Aren't you artificially restricting wage increases when you actually need lots of people who are skilled? Without wanting to sound like a broken record, there will continue to be pay increases but in not related to inflation in the public sector. Uh, we will continue to go through the bargaining process for that. Public sector wages have lifted significantly faster than private sector wages over recent years as well. And we have had, as you will recall, very significant settlements with the nurses and the teachers in last term. Um, and so we will continue to work with them. But uh, it's all part of a balanced approach. And as I say, you can make your judgment next week on that. How is the Reserve Bank supposed to um, get inflation going in the economy when its own government is restricting price and uh, wage increases? Well, as I say, I think what we're saying is that we're looking for a period of restraint within public sector pay, but that doesn't mean that there's no increases. And obviously, um, private sector entities will make their own judgments and their own decisions in the environment that we're in. So how um, are you going to achieve your aims that you mentioned in your speech about uh, well-being and uh, child poverty and housing without increasing the size of the public service and how can you do that when you've just restricted wage increases? Well, again, we, can, we have employed a large number of extra public servants over this period of time to be able to implement the program that we've got. Um, I am repeating myself, there will be wage and pay increases in the public sector. This is about the guidance that's given to chief executives for negotiations. We also have existing agreements that continue to flow through, a number of whom actually, and this is not talking about nurses and teachers, but other parts of the public sector where there are still percentage pay increases to come from agreements that have already been signed. Was there a connection between this announcement and the fair pay agreements um, a couple of days later? Because you could argue, you know, this shows the public sector is taking the pain, now the private sector should um, I think I'd argue the connection differently, Bernard, and the connection is that our focus is on lifting the pay of the lowest income New Zealanders and on reducing inequality. 
the sectors that are most likely to benefit from fair pay agreements are those that are low paid sectors, areas like supermarkets and security guards and bus drivers. Similarly, in our public sector pay, we've focused on the 25% who are earning less than 60,000. So that's the connection I'd make between the two. Are you saying that the only way to reduce inequality is by holding down the incomes of those at the top? <laughs> no, it's not. Obviously, we seek to grow the overall productivity of the economy and lift the value of what we do. What I am pointing out, though, is that when you're in a constrained environment, fiscally, as we are, having taken on the debt that we do, that we have to make some choices and we do have to make uh, have areas that we focus on. We are committed as a government to reducing inequality. Um, as I mentioned in the speech, we've seen other uh, downturns where uh, coming out the other end of it, inequality has been exacerbated and we're determined that that doesn't happen. In but terms of yes, reducing yeah. inequality, um, we've talked about wages, but how much more likely is it that there could be a lift in benefits for those at the lowest end of the income spectrum? As I said, I'm, I'm not going to get into what we are doing next week. What I would point to is the government's record already in the sense that we had the, the $25 a week in Increase. We've indexed benefits to wages, which Andrew Beecroft, among others, said was one of the most significant things that we could do. We've just changed the abatement rates to allow people to keep more of their income um, while they're on a benefit. So we've made good progress. We've always said that there is more to do and so, more so, work to so do. Not, so why but I'm not going to go into the so, detail so, today, so, so why can't so you just let's hear have one more. The briefing to the incoming Minister on Child Poverty Reduction said that material hardship is going to increase strongly because of COVID-19. $25 benefit increase, and NGOs have said that doesn't go far enough, people are still struggling. As I said, we always recognise that there is more to do here, um, and the Welfare Expert Advisory Group had a large number of different recommendations. You've seen the child poverty statistics that have come out recently. We've made good progress with around 40,000 people moving uh, around the after housing cost measure. We recognise that with a material hardship there is a lot of work to do there as well. So this, as I said, is part of our top three with housing and climate change and child wellbeing, and we'll continue to make progress across the but, term. But you could make an immediate improvement right now by just carrying out the $5 billion increase in benefits. You can afford it. Why are you choosing debt repayment over increasing incomes for poor kids? As I said, it's a balance for us. We have made significant progress in lifting children out of poverty. It's one of our top three priorities alongside housing and climate change. Um, but we will strike a balance in this budget that is about what we're doing now, how we're preparing ourselves for the future. I've got to go and get a plane. Sorry. And there we go, that was at the end of the press conference. So just to summarise, what's happening here is the government has decided to use the benefits of the economic recovery, uh, much better than expected, even from December, and to use that extra headroom created from the pre-election fiscal update debt track, which, um, depending on how you measure it, is anything from 25 to $30 billion, and instead of using that to immediately reduce child poverty by increasing benefits as recommended by the Welfare Experts Advisory Group, by immediately using that money, for example, to signal more house building or infrastructure spending, the government has chosen to uh, focus instead on reducing debt, uh, that debt track, um, even more than is already the case because of the economic rebound. And what that will mean is that the Reserve Bank will struggle to buy enough bonds to keep interest rates low because it's restricted by its agreement with the government to not buy more than 60% of the bonds on issue. Because the government is not borrowing so much, 
the reserve banks running out of bonds to buy, and we'll have to look at other ways to uh, loosen monetary policy. Now, the most obvious way right now is it is it is for it to cut the official cash rate even further, possibly to go negative, and then to use the scheme it's already set up, the funding for lending scheme, so that it can lend money directly to banks at potentially negative interest rates. At the moment, banks just aren't lending to businesses. They say there isn't enough demand, but they would use that very, very cheap money from the Reserve Bank to pump it into the housing market. So just zooming out again to a helicopter level, the government has decided to keep interest rates low. That will mean there is more pressure upwards on house prices, and it's done it instead of spending money immediately on reducing child poverty, dealing with our housing crisis, and dealing with climate change immediately. Um, in, in my view, I think that's a mistake. New Zealand government, the New Zealand government debt is barely 30% of GDP. It's 50% of GDP in Australia, and um, over 100% in the United States. The global bond markets love New Zealand. We've just been upgraded, our credit rating and um, there would be plenty of demand for those bonds if the government wanted to, to sell them. That was the Dawn Chorus. I'm Bernard Hickey on the Kaka. Thank you.